Hey guys, this is Mike Mahaffey, the old bastard BJJ guy, here for BJJ Mental Models. Back in my day, we had to walk uphill in the snow both ways to get to the academy just to learn some crappy technique from a random purple belt. You kids have it so easy, because now you can just subscribe to BJJ Mental Models Premium and get tons of great audio courses to learn new techniques, enhance your mindset, and entertain yourself. You can even get personalized rolling reviews from some of your favorite BJJ Mental Models coaches, including me. It's like having your own seminar, you spoiled little whippersnappers. So what are you waiting for? Subscribe to BJJ Mental Models Premium right now, get off my lawn, and go train. episode 267. I'm Steve Kwan. BJJ Mental Models is your guide to a conceptual and intelligent jiu-jitsu approach. And I'm back again with friend of the show from Standard Jiu-Jitsu, Mr. Greg Sauters. How's it going, Greg? It's going good, sir. Glad to be here once again. I am glad to have you, man. Last time we came on and we talked, we unpacked some of the, I'm hesitant to say modern coaching methods because they're kind of really only modern in the context of jujitsu. You know, (laughs) as you mentioned in our last chat, we are in the leather helmet phase of the sports development. So we're, we're a little bit behind other sports, but we had a good chat about that stuff. And that kind of got me thinking as I was talking to you, every time you get a chance to speak, it's always about eco, which is important and all, but that's just really one aspect of your coaching method. I think probably, like I was saying, as with Preet Mikkelsen, you know, when you're known for one thing, people kind of assume erroneously that's all you do. We just had Preet on recently to talk about things other than just pure defense. And I thought, you know what, this would be a great opportunity to talk to you about some of your other thoughts on on the coaching sphere. Uh, With that said, though, for people who missed the first episode, because I know it was a while, do you want to give yourself a quick intro? Just remind everyone who you are and what you're about? Yeah, for sure. So uh, my name is Coach Greg Souders. I run a school out of Rockville, Maryland called Standard Jiu-Jitsu. And I I recently got some notoriety within the last year because a few of my athletes have won some major tournaments and made a bunch of noise on the competitive scene. And along with that, I decided to come out publicly and share the training method that we were using to help these athletes get prepared for competition. Uh, And so as you guys have heard me before, if you're hearing me new for the first time, that method is the ecological approach, which, you know, it's expressed mostly through the constraints led approach. That's what I've been trying to share with people. That's the central thing around how we train our athletes. So yeah, that's who I am, I guess. Awesome. And for those who missed the memo, because it's funny, this is probably one of the most common questions I get is what is the ecological approach? And I fully understand why people ask that question. Um, Not so much because it's complicated, but because we've done 267 episodes of this damn thing. So people often miss the chats where we answer this stuff. So I would say for people who are unclear about what this is about, um, good episodes to cover that if you want to go back in time. Last appearance we had with Greg was episode 203, where we talked about this stuff. We also had a great chat with uh, Dr. Rob Gray, one of the more prominent researchers in the field on episode 206. So I'd recommend checking those out if you want to learn more about eco or also check out the Primal MMA coaching podcast by friend of the show, Scott Sivright. If you're a coach and you really want to dig into this stuff, he goes a lot deeper than we do into eco. But that said, we thought this would be a fun time to do a slightly different topic. Now, what you were talking about, Greg, and I thought this would be amazing is some myth busting about the coaching end of jujitsu things that we all take for granted as common knowledge but that actually maybe it's not as true as we thought it would be i mean an example i gave in the beginning as we were talking is you will hear every coach under the sun say you either win or you learn that's true but there's no rule saying that those things are mutually exclusive right there's a lot of examples like that in jujitsu where we just things were passed down to us from instructor to instructor and we never questioned them and you had some great examples of that so with that said i'll hand the mic over to you and why don't you give us a bit of an intro into some of these myths that you think need to be dispelled in jujitsu okay for sure so one of the things that i think lead to this is exactly that traditional saying is coach teaches students student teaches what coach taught student and this gets you know, replicated over and over and over again. So there's really not this push for like, let's say coach teaches student and that student becomes coach for that coach to then try to understand why their coach said what they did or what methods they use to help get them there and what current methods are going on that maybe the newer growing coach could, um, you know, learn and improve on to become, you know, modern and up to date. And so this is just not something that's talked about. You know, our, our sport itself is heavily steeped in traditionalism. And so again, this the secondary effect of this is that it actually, we take all those uh, 
myths and those things that are just said for having being said, and we just keep spreading them, you know, generation after generation. And I think it's, this is a problem for our sport. The winning and the losing is definitely one of them. So why is it you either win or you learn? Aren't we in the business of learning? Isn't that what's going on when we, every time we step on the mat? Whether it be um, something we're trying to accomplish in training or something we're trying to accomplish out in a competitive sphere, are we not always trying to learn to become better? Like, why does it have to be tied to the results? Aren't winning, losing, and ultimately the same thing? They're just a result, right? So what's hidden within that result, I think, is what we should be looking for. The learning is not based on the result itself, but what happens no matter what result we receive, winning or losing. So I say learning happens all the time, regardless of the outcome, or that should be what the goal is towards any action. Yeah, you bring up some great points. And it's funny, you mentioned that jujitsu is steeped in traditionalism. And I think most jujitsu people would argue that they would say, no, we're a, a modern evidence-based sport. You know, this, we train jujitsu because it works and it's been proven to work. And to some extent, there's some truth in that, right? A lot of people got into this because Hoist beat up a bunch of people in a cage who had never heard of jujitsu before. And, you know, there is some truth to the fact that maybe we're less traditional than a lot of the quote unquote traditional martial arts. But I think people don't realize just how traditional jujitsu actually is for a sport as relatively young as it is. There's a lot of weird methods and, and traditions that have been inherited and passed down from coach to coach. And sometimes it can be challenging to question those things because people don't want to hear it. But I see this all the time where coaches will be insistent that there's a right way to do things. And it takes a pretty concerted movement to prove them wrong. You know, good examples in recent history include things like leg locks, right, which for a long time were just considered garbage techniques that don't work. And then about 10 years ago, that started changing. There's a lot of examples of just people taking things at face value because their coach passed it down and not really questioning it. So uh, interesting topic for sure. And yeah, you know, another example that you brought up as well was this um, conversation that comes up a lot about training to learn versus training to win. And this is not an uncommon thought. Uh, we've had many people that I respect greatly talk about the difference on the podcast here, but you were bringing up some good points earlier before we hit record about how these things are maybe not as different as people think. Tell me a little bit about this. So what's the myth here that gets propagated and why would you say that that myth is actually wrong? Okay. So first I just want to just note something you just said. It's funny is when you gave the example of jujitsu's effectiveness, you talked about something that happened back in 1991. Isn't that interesting? Jiu-Jitsu has been around for 30 years. You brought something up where a guy got in a cage with the gi on and fought guys who didn't know what was going on. It's kind of funny. You know what I mean? I think that it shows you how steeped in traditionalism we are. You're still arguing for jujitsu based on something that happened 30 years ago. Uh, another interesting thing that's tied to that is no one's talking about where jiu-jitsu now is in the current model of fighting, right? Like if we were to look at where jiu-jitsu came from, it, it's, it first emerged as a fighting art. So it could be used against other arts to show its effectiveness. But wrestling has been proven to be more of an effective tool in that sense than jiu-jitsu has. And again, not considering that you have to know how to defend submissions to fight, but still, if you look at all the champions in the UFC, they're all ex-wrestlers. And so really, have things changed? Like, is jiu-jitsu as effective as it used to be? Now, we know it's understood, it's trained, it's utilized, but to what degree, right? Is training with the Gion still something that people should do? Where's the representation in modern fighting from jiu-jitsu athletes now? And why has it changed? So I think these are important questions because it shows how stuck we are in the past. We're not really updating. Uh, so that was the first thing I just wanted to note. Now, the second thing that you asked about is what, what's the big myth between winning and losing, winning and learning? And the thing is here is I think people are stuck uh, in trying to differentiate between what we do in training and what we do in competition. So my argument here is that training and competition are actually the same thing. So I don't like to think of it as like, again, things we do in training and things we do in competition. I like to think about the idea of performance. So if we think about what training is designed for, training is designed to create what's called the transfer effect. The idea is that what we do in training should make us better at what we do when in the moment that it matters. And now this can be defined in many different ways. If you're a competitor, it could be that tournament that you're trying to train for. If you're a hobbyist, it could be your buddy Joe that you want to beat next week. It doesn't matter. But what we do in training should get us better at getting closer to the thing that we ultimately want to perform under, the stress we want to perform under, the situation we want to perform under. And so my argument is that we compete every day. Competing is part of training. If you are not competing in training, you are not training. And so I think that part of the reason why this is poorly understood is that, and you actually mentioned this earlier when we were talking, is that they're like training wheels. People's opinions about these things are like training wheels because we're trying to figure something out. 
Well, we feel like competition is super stressful and it's high pace, it's high speed, and not a lot of learning goes on when we're competing, but a lot of learning goes on in the training room and it seems to be less high, high pace, you know, less intense. And so how do we note the differences here? How do we start to control for these differences? And I think the myths that we currently have about how we should act in training are an att- our first attempt to control these variables. Yeah, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I agree with you. I think that there is an element of that conventional wisdom that is definitely ripe to be questioned. I think that when people say things like train to win versus train to learn, like you mentioned, we're talking fundamentally about training wheels here. We're assuming that there is an athlete that we're we're training with who is so focused on, on winning the rounds that they haven't consciously thought about what their training goals are for class. And they're just kind of going into this and just, you know, letting Jesus take the wheel basically. And and that is a, a real thing. Now, look, honestly, you will get better doing that, right? I mean, if you just roll into class and you just roll hard every day, you will get better. But if you are deliberate about your training, you'll get better even faster. And the whole point about training wheels is an interesting thing. It's funny because I've got a kid now who is at that age where she's got a bike and, you know, training wheels, there is a debate as to whether it's even a good thing to put training wheels on a bike. It's a bad thing. Yeah, exactly. Because this is getting kind of ecological here. You're giving people practice on something that isn't the performance environment you really care about. I mean, riding a bike with training wheels is totally different from riding a bike without them. And you run the risk of giving people irrelevant experience. And that is something that can very much happen in jujitsu. We've talked about this on the podcast before about how one of the things coaches tend to do is they will create training wheels for their beginner students but not tell them these are training wheels. And so that can misinform students. A very common example is people saying, don't cross your ankles when you're on someone's back, right? A lot of people do that because they think it's a universally bad rule. It's not really. It's just that when you're a white belt and you don't know better, they don't want you to get ankle locked like an idiot, right? So they give you these restrictions. But once you're a black belt, I mean, you absolutely can do this as long as you're smart enough to not let the other person exploit it. So training wheels. Well, we're not. Well, the, the problem with training wheels is they they decouple the athlete or the performer from their environment, right? So I understand why people have an inclination to use them, right? So on a bike, right? We put training wheels on because we don't want the new learner to fall over. But what we fail to learn is learning how to ride a bike is resisting falling over. So if we remove that potentiality from the learner, then they never understand the concept of balance, which is central to all bike riding. So the idea is what can we put in place of? Because training wheels is not the answer. It's how do we scale the experience? And that's what most coaches are trying to solve is the scaling problem. How do we make it difficult enough while keeping everything uh, representative enough that a new player can start engaging in the learning experience without it being completely overwhelming to the point where they won't want to engage anymore? And so I think I've talked to you about the bike riding thing before, but the genius idea behind teaching new kids, the kids how to ride bikes is not to put training wheels, but to take off the pedals. So the idea is that if we know that the central feature behind riding bike is just balance and we'll let the kids experience balance, they can put their feet on the floor and they can run the bike. And then when they're ready to drift, they pick their feet up and they get to experience, you know, controlling the tilt of the, the two-wheeled object. And then after a kid gets used to that experience and they can glide for long periods of time without falling over, slap the pedals back on. And so now that they accelerate themselves by touching the floor and picking their feet up, they have access to balance now. All they have to do is pedal. And so as coaches, we we, we want to find out what that is for our sport. And so the magic is in the resistance. It's in the, this might happen to you, but you need to give them the opportunity for something to happen that they're resisting, right? And so a simple example could be training someone to stay on top of somebody. It doesn't matter where you start them. I argue this a million times. You don't want to tell them what not to do or what could go wrong or what to avoid. Just tell them to get on top of somebody and hold them down because everything that we initially have to learn how to fight against comes from that action. That action is fundamental to all future action from any given top position. So again, we, we can find ways to scale it without decoupling the athlete from the environment or keeping the situation between athlete and environment representative. Yeah, that's a great example that I think pretty much anyone who's trained um, for any modicum of time can probably draw parallels to jujitsu when we're talking about the bike riding training wheels example. When you think about the way that a lot of jujitsu classes are taught in the traditional sense they're kind of taught with training wheels. You're teaching people techniques without resistance. So what you're actually doing is you're getting people to go through the steps, but you're taking away the one variable that actually matters, which is the resistance. And that very much reminds me of the training wheel situation. The reason why training wheels are suboptimal is because you're simulating something that looks like riding a bike, but it just looks like it. It doesn't feel like it. It doesn't play like it. So to go on to that point is technique is training wheels. 
that's why like my stupid clickbaity argument that people don't listen to me about is <laughs> I don't teach technique. I don't put the training wheels on the person because the technique is a false guide for why we do any given thing, right? So instead, I think about it like this. What is something that irritates advanced people about new people, right? You always hear this thing when uh, uh, like a, a regular jitsu guy, maybe he's a blue, maybe he's a purple belt, maybe he has some competence and a stronger guy comes in, maybe a stronger guy with some athletic background and that guy bench presses the new guy off the mount, pushes him off every time. <laughs> guy doesn't know what the fuck he's doing, but he can bench press your ass off. And what do you hear the advanced guy say? You get, see the advanced guy say, oh, that's wrong. You shouldn't do that. You shouldn't push. That's inefficient. But yet the advanced player can't stop it. So what this suggests to me is that that advanced player still has his training wheels on. He doesn't understand one of the first things that we have to learn how to deal with as a top player. So if we take that like little scenario into account, we sort of start starting to look at how we could learn how to ride a bike in a scaling fashion without training wheels. And it would be something as simple as that. We know that pushing is effective up until even the highest level if you're strong. So we can start with a simple game. Bottom player, push top player off. Top player, don't let bottom player push you off, right? And so it's not complex. It's not chaotic. It's a very simple action that you're ultimately going to learn how to deal with, right? And it gives you access to a lot of things about being on top with while only dealing with one variable, right? So this is a way that we can start to discover what or how we might want to scale our training, what we can use to scale our training. I want to unpack that example a bit because this is something that everyone who's trained jujitsu can relate to. This problem of, hey, I was on top of homie here and I did the arm bar perfectly, exactly the way the coach taught me to do it. And this dude on the bottom just Hercules to me and just threw me off. You know, I have heard so many people and I have been this person get frustrated because you did everything the way that your coach taught you and some untrained idiot just basically bench pressed you off. And the implication there is that there's something wrong about what the person on the bottom is doing. And this is an issue that we often have in jujitsu. People will say things like, don't ever use strength or attributes. Well, the problem is as the person receiving that strategy and that tactic, you will be in there sparring with people who use strength and attributes. Now, you don't want your training partners to be dangerous, but them trying to bench press you off, regardless of what the Gracies say, that's going to be one of the more common responses, right? And so the issue that can happen sometimes is if you train with people who are more experienced or more, um, you know, they're just kind of chilling and they're flowing more, sometimes you don't get that look. You don't get people in there who want to just bench you off. But the issue is that's one of the most common experiences you're actually going to get against beginners. And even against high-level people, if someone is enough of an athlete and they are good enough at jiu-jitsu to know when they can extend their arms safely, I mean, there are very good people who will just straight arm you from bottom mount and, and turf you off. Marcelo Garcia does it. Yeah, yeah. And I think the issue is that a lot of people, they get really frustrated in jiu-jitsu because they're getting thrown off from mount, right? Which is the quote unquote wrong thing for that person to do. It's not supposed to work, but yet here it is working every time. And the problem is that people are focused on the wrong thing. They were focused on trying to do an arm bar for mount or whatever, whereas what they should have been focused on is trying to hold top position and get used to playing top position no matter what that person on the bottom does. For sure. And even by saying that, you're, you're like showing a bunch of other myths that exist in our culture. So another myth is that there is a right and wrong thing to do like there isn't like the right and wrongness. I've argued this before is a spectrum and rightness is only just effective. So if we're playing, if we're playing any aspect of jitsu, the whole game or otherwise, and let's say the job we're in top position, well, you know, your job is to stay up there until you can, you know, weaken your partner structure in such a way that it can no longer apply and receive force. And then you can do damage to them with strangulation or breaking. Right. But that guy's able just to shove your ass off. Well, they're doing it right because you can't stop them. And if you have to tell them they're wrong to stop them, now you're doing something else. You're suggesting that jiu-jitsu doesn't work. If jiu-jitsu work, why would you have to tell your opponent anything? Why would you just go back into that problem and see if you could stop the push, right? Isn't that what we're trying to do? I mean, what are we trying to develop outside of effectively manipulating our partner towards ends that benefit us? Isn't that what we're doing? So why does it have to be told? Why can't it be done? So I think focusing a student around achieving outcomes or performing tasks towards just being effective is where we should start. You know what I mean? And then we always keep what is happening as being as true as possible. Because if I can reproduce effect over and over again, is it that, isn't that not right? Yep. Reminds me of this old uh, 
in Living Color sketch was Jim Carrey, where he's playing a martial arts instructor. You might even know the one I'm talking about. And he's trying to teach people uh, knife defense. And so he gets his training partner to basically try to stab him and he keeps fucking it up and they keep stabbing him. He's bleeding all over the mats and he, but he keeps saying, no, you're attacking me wrong. You're, this isn't the right technique to attack me with. We very much see that in jujitsu and you're completely right. If jujitsu works, then you shouldn't need to put all of these restrictive parameters around your training partner to make them do jujitsu the way that you want them to do it. It reminds me of kind of when jujitsu first started getting countered in MMA, where I first noticed this was back in the pride days with guys like Fedor, you know, for a long time, the thought was jujitsu was this kill switch. And if you had good jujitsu, you could just defeat anyone. And then for me, one of the big moments where I realized things were shifting was watching Fedor fight Minotaro Nogueira, where Fedor just got in this guy's guard and he was not there to play jujitsu. Everyone else went into this guy's guard and was trying to out jujitsu Nogueira. Fedor just sat there and just beat the shit out of this guy from inside his guard, right? And that's when I realized, you know what? There's there are maybe things about this sport where we we set up rules to make it easier for ourselves to look good and for ourselves to win. And I think that's only getting worse as um, jiu-jitsu, you know, some of the rules, for example, I've talked about this quite critically. Some of a lot of the rules in the IBJJF really, I think, steer the direction of the sport towards what the Gracie's vision of it was versus what might actually be effective in a fight. Well, and I think the problem here is I keep hearing you say it. Like I can tell we're both, you and I are both affected in dinner. Excuse me. We're both affected by the culture that we've come from and the myths that existed as we came up. So you, you keep saying out jujitsu, jujitsu, jujitsu. What do we really mean when we say that word? Do we just mean the moves and tactics and um, things that we've been shown traditionally? What, what does that word actually mean? And so for me, I've talked about this before, I think, I'm sure I have, is that jujitsu is not a set of movements or techniques, but a philosophy. It's a philosophy of more versus less. So I use more of my body against less of yours to create a mechanical, tactical, or strategic advantage. So if that's the case, then you can't out jujitsu, jujitsu, jujitsu is always present. It's how you look at what you think jujitsu is that causes that problem. So if jujitsu is just a set of techniques, you'll, you don't actually understand jujitsu. So if a guy's able to get inside your clothes guard and beat your face in, because he doesn't want to do like, first I put my hands on you, then I stand, then I open legs. Bador is using jujitsu. It's more efficient to hold someone on their back and beat them in the face than it is to try to open the legs. Like if I was fighting and you put me in the closed guard, I would headbutt you and elbow you to death. Like I would never try to open your legs. Do you know what I mean? Because so if we understand what's happening in that exchange, for example, it's like, why the closed guard? Why does the closed guard exist? What is interesting about the closed guard? So as a tactic, what's interesting is closed guard gives you instant hip access. So if I can close my legs around your waist, for example, I immobilize you essentially, but I also inadvertently immobilize myself. Now in a pure grappling context, this could give me an advantage because in order for you to cause harm to me, you have to open my legs first to get to critical parts of my body, my hips, my neck, my back, whatever. But in a mixed martial arts context, it is not that same case. By wrapping my legs around my opponent's hips, I immobilize myself to the floor, making my face more punchable. So again, if we understood jiu-jitsu for what it actually was, which is just a philosophy of behavior, not just a series of techniques, then you can't actually out jiu-jitsu because we're all using it all the time. Yeah, absolutely. I love that example of how we sometimes go into these techniques because we have maybe an understanding of where they're useful, but a lot of the time that's based on what we think our opponent is going to do. And this is where you get into discussions of the meta and its importance. I mean, closed guard is a great example. When I started training, closed guard was at the time considered the fundamental guard. You could walk into any jujitsu school in North America and day one, the first thing they would teach you is closed guard. These days, I mean, that's still probably the most common thing for most gyms, but many coaches challenge that. I don't know where your stance is on this, but- Oh, I'd love to talk about that. Yeah, yeah. Let's go for it then. I mean, yeah. where do you feel closed guard fits in as a quote unquote fundamental? And I, I use that term facetiously. No, for sure. No, I hear you. I hear you. So again, my argument is that there's nothing fundamental about a given position. Their fundamentals aren't positions. That doesn't make any sense because it has to, you can't divide it any lower. That's what fundamental means. It's at its base. So all guards- have a fundamental feature that we need to understand. So when we're talking to new players, it does not matter where you start them because fundamental has to do with not position, but condition and effect. What do we use guards for? That's what you teach beginners. We use guards to manage distance. So in our fundamentals class, for example, we teach distance management as fundamental, not the guard. So we just teach the guard's function because it expresses the fundamental nature of its utility, right? Uh, so any guard, pick one, doesn't matter, closed, open, have, Z, 
as long as you're using it to make and maintain connection to manage distance, you're using the guard in its fundamental form. You know what I mean? So again, there are no fundamental positions. This isn't real. It's a myth. There's no such thing. I start my students from all, all kinds of places. You know what I mean? And they all have functional guards, my competitors and otherwise. I love that kind of generalized explanation of what things are. And this is the way that I prefer to explain jujitsu to people. You know, people always um, ask, you know, how can you teach jujitsu to someone over audio because everything that we make is audio and my answer i mean don't want to get too ecological here but my answer is of course (laughs) you can't teach jujitsu to someone over audio that's simply not possible right but same way that you can't teach someone in jujitsu with an instructional at some point they have to actually do it what the audio is useful for is conveying ideas and i think this is one of the ideas that i've always tried to convey here is to think less about specific positions or techniques and more about generalized concepts you bring up a great example. I mean, if you were to ask me, white belt Steve, back in the day, what I would define a guard as, I would say it's, oh, well, it's where you put yourself on the bottom and you use your legs to do whatever. Now, my thought is more just really all a guard is, is if you're on the bottom, you're using all parts of your body to try to get back on top, maybe even get a submission if you can. It's about positional advancement and control. And I would say that getting back to your earlier point, one of the main things about jujitsu that I guess distinguishes it is this emphasis on fighting off of the bottom. Other sports have that, but in jiu-jitsu, we kind of look at that almost like a default sometimes for, for better or for worse. And I find that this helps beginners a lot because there are so many quote-unquote techniques in jiu-jitsu that it just becomes an overwhelming game to try to learn them all. I mean, people, I honestly, and I've said this many times on this podcast, I actually don't know that much quote-unquote jiu-jitsu. You know, I'm a hobbyist. I train a few times a week at best. I don't have a lot of time to watch a bunch of instructionals. And from my experience, even if I do watch instructionals, most of that shit I wind up not absorbing or not using because it's just not a great way to convey information, right? When you say that you don't understand a lot of jiu-jitsu, what do you mean? Like, what do, what do you mean when you say that? That's Steve. Great question. What I mean is I don't know a lot of techniques, right? If you were to ask me to do a, I don't know, like a barambolo and matrix hook back take fancy sequence, I probably could not do it. However, if someone tried to do it on me, I could shut it down, right? So I don't know the techniques. What I always try to do is make sure I understand the core concept. How is the human body supposed to move? And in any weird situation, what is the strongest way for me to configure my limbs? And what is the weakest way for me to reconfigure their limbs, right? If you learn jujitsu as a way that we use interactions to produce specific effects and we just learned the functions of our interactions you can learn quote all of jujitsu because like i said i think it's it's a myth to say you don't know a lot of jiu-jitsu because there's not a lot of jiu-jitsu to know it's a very simple game it's complex in its component parts and how they intermingle every time we interact but again it's a very simple simple game i mean it is connect with each other get as close as you can to your opponent put their limbs in extension or contraction to get access to the base joint or the neck. Like always doing the same thing over and over and over again. It just takes different configurations. So what you're really saying is you don't have degenerate ways to solve foundational problems. It's not that you don't know a lot of jujitsu. It's that you may not understand jujitsu at a fundamental level. Because then I'm not saying that offensively, because I think that's the hardest thing to actually access. I don't think that it's how much techniques you know but it's how and why these techniques exist. If you can define that, then you know jujitsu, right? So if you can look at all guards and pull all guards apart into their invariant features, then you know jujitsu. If you can look at all arm locks and you can pull apart their invariant features, then you know jujitsu, right? So yeah, so I, I don't know. I wouldn't say that you don't know a lot of jujitsu, man. I'd give yourself more credit than that. Well, I'm I'm being a bit facetious here. I'm I'm saying that in the context of many people look at jujitsu as a game of collecting techniques. This is something that I know Rob Bernacki has criticized heavily, that many people, they think, if I just had more techniques, if I just knew more techniques, I'd be better. And this is a trap that I absolutely, like everyone else, fell into early in my jujitsu journey, where if I was getting stuck somewhere, if if my coach was pinning me on bottom side control, the first thing that would come to my mind is, Someone teach me the technique to get out of this. But what I learned 
and unfortunately it took me till about brown belt to learn this is there is no technique that is the magic silver bullet answer to every any random problem because you can't control what your opponent is going to do right and you can have the best hip escape in the world but if they top spin on top of you and they're on the other side of your body now well whatever you were planning to do now you've got to change that plan and so if you look at jujitsu as this game of memorizing and regurgitating techniques you're making it harder for yourself because now you're creating this obligation where you have to memorize everything. Uh, the example I, I often give is it's like how, you know, think back to high school when you had to go do a test. You would try to cram as much crap into your head so the night before so that you could regurgitate the answers onto a piece of paper and then you would promptly forget about it the day after, <laughs> right? That is that really learning? I would say not necessarily. That is memory and recall for the purpose of a single performance, but that doesn't mean you necessarily understand what it is you said. It's kind of like a, it's like chat GPT in that way, right? You can regurgitate the answer, but that doesn't mean you understand the answer. Uh, and I think that is a common misconception with beginners, especially is thinking that more techniques is the answer. And the flip side of that is beginners often make themselves miserable because they never will know the number of techniques they wish they did, right? No one, no matter how much time in the day they have to train and study is going to know everything. And so if you think the game and the goal here is to remember every single technique, you're, you're setting yourself up for failure and it's not even really a great way to train anyway. Well, think about this. This is something I, I noticed. I think it's pretty interesting. You know, we see all these top guys in our sport, you know, they're all over I and G, they're all over DVDs on BJ Fanatics showing all these techniques, all these different guards and passes and this, that, and the other. And they have a fucking eight hours of it. Okay. And they show you all this stuff. But when you watch them compete, you don't see any of it and nobody flinches. Like, you know, you got like a top guy, you know, he sells you 30 DVDs on how to do like this special type of guard pass yet he'll fight another guy and he'll never be able to get to other guy's hips or never be able to get past his feet. You know what I mean? So what the hell is happening? Like these guys are clearly saying all this stuff works, but he doesn't even do what he says. Isn't that weird? You know what I mean? And, and no one says, fuck his competition, his performance looks nothing like what he's selling us. So it's like the guys at the top in some ways are perpetuating this technique, 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 move based sport to sell a DVD. You know what I mean? And again, like I said, I, I always rail on the DVDs and all the, all the, all these external things. Now I think they have value in, in certain contexts, but again, if, if we think about it, is it not maybe perpetuating what we're trying to get away from? You know what I mean? Like anyway, so yeah, so it, there's something else going on that we need to focus on, right? There's something else. It's not, again, like you said, the technique, it's, it's something else underneath it that we should be doing when we're training. Yeah. I think a big part of that comes from honestly, customer expectations. People make instructionals like that because the customer wants that. The customer wants to know the 20 different lapel chokes that world champion XYZ knows that that's what they want. The customer doesn't come in saying things like, Hey, show me the generalized constraint-based games that, that, that you use to build up this game plan. People just want easy packaged answers. And when you come into jujitsu and your only prior experience is with martial arts is watching movies and seeing what happens in Hollywood, you kind of have this, this romanticized idea that it's just about endless drills and just knowing that the magic kill shot and the five finger death punch. And I think some of that does um, trigger into jujitsu. I mean, look at Gordon Ryan, right? You talked about people who, how, what they do at the highest levels is not the same as what they sell. I mean, Gordon Ryan goes out of his way to try to bring those together and to do the technique he's trying to sell. And, the part of what makes Gordon so great at jujitsu is that he can actually do that, right? The vast majority of us could not do that. I cannot walk into a gym and, and say, Hey, I'm going to take the best competitors here and I'm going to triangle them all. So the fact that he can do that is actually amazing. But again, I think that kind of puts people into this mindset of, oh, if only I had the right technique again. And it's not the technique that is necessarily going to win the fight. That might be the last thing you see, and it might be the, vis the visual part you notice, but that's the tip of the iceberg. And that doesn't necessarily reflect how people train to get ready for that match. Well, I think, I mean, there's a, there's a lot of stuff there. So I think the first, I'd like to talk about the Gordon Danner thing, because everyone brings that up as like a counterpoint to my argument. And it's just, their, it's their ignorance, not mine. So what's really interesting about Danner's method, and this is what I, why I like Danner so much, is that his fundamental understanding of what's happening is beautiful. So he understands invariance, whether he uses that word or not, right? So let's say he sells a triangle DVD, okay? And he'll, he'll get, start with the first five, 10 minutes, whatever, explaining to you why, when, and what triangles are, how they're defined, you know, why are they important? And he gives you like the synopsis of, of the thing itself. He defines it for you. And then if you watch his methods, all of his methods are linked 
to the invariance of how it occurs. For example, we know that triangles come from separating your opponent's hands. It's so simple. Get past your opponent's hands, separate them so we can create the arm in, arm out scenario. We can do this a bunch of different ways. So if you look at Danner's methods, right, so that you watch all eight hours, all his methods, they're all examples of how to separate hands and elbows so we can create arm in, arm out scenarios with our legs. That's all. He's not actually showing different techniques. He's showing one technique over and over and over again. But people don't see that. That's the funny part. And But then you have this other guy who teaches, does a DVD and he actually does the wrong way. He doesn't. His stuff is not based on principles. It's not based on concepts. It's not based on invariance. It's just the 37 different ways he thinks that, you know, you do a K guard entry to whatever. But Danaher and Gordon stuff, I, I don't like, I don't even say Gordon stuff because Gordon stuff is Danaher stuff. So, and again, I'm not trying to insult Gordon. It's just that it's Danaher, right? Danaher stuff is very fundamentally sound based on invariance. Like again, he shows the same thing over and over again. Yeah, I agree. I think that, I mean, Danaher's big contribution to jujitsu is being an advocate for systems thinking and kind of moving more towards this path of looking at things at a higher level. And that's not to say he invented any of this. I mean, systems thinking is not a new idea, but definitely, a, you know, he was kind of the guy who started popularizing this approach in jujitsu and kind of moving towards more modern ways of thinking, at least in my mind. Right. And but when I think of systems, again, I, I flinch at that a little bit because like the way people say that word, they think decision tree, they think this, then that. Now, to some degree, this, then that is a real thing, but it's not as complex and nuanced as people think it is. Either your arms are separated or they're not, for example. It's really only one or the other. You know, states really only come in dilemmas and trilemmas. They're not really complex beyond that because we're only de- we're dealing with a small quantity of how limbs move. So it's not like I think about this, then I think about this, then I think about that. They're just creating different ways to separate arms and they're reading it in real time. And, and they are doing that. So again, if again, if you see, if you watched Gordon's DVD, he only does one or two things that he shows in the entirety of the DVD. But that one or two things are fundamental in the fact that they're invariant and they are the conditions that need to be fulfilled to reach the outcomes that he's talking about. So again, if you watch closely, <laughs> he could teach everything on that eight hour DVD in 10 minutes, but you can't sell 10 minutes for $400. You know, it's interesting because I have noticed this trend of a significantly shorter instructionals and they're always better. They're always way, way better. But For sure. again, it's not what the customer wants, right? If, if you're going to charge $400, the customer is expecting volume as opposed to quality. And that I think is an, an issue where I understand why instructors do this this way because they're trying to maximize their profits, but you're really kind of leaning into the worst inclinations of your customers. Right. And that's the problem, right? So whose fault is it? Is it the beginner who is ignorant of how why things occur or is it the person perpetuating the ignorance? So our goal as instructors, leaders, whatever you want to call us, is to pull people away from those expectations, is to change their mind and get them looking at what's actually true. But if there's a financial incentive, this is often isn't the case. You know, and what's interesting is we argue beyond this point, like, oh, I got to make a living. Now, not to be extreme, but if we take this in an area that's unhealthy, maybe selling of bad foods or, you know, unhealthy, you know, social drugs or whatever, we would instantly see, yeah, it's probably not that good to be giving somebody something that would ultimately hurt them. Now, in the long run, a bad DVD and spending too much money on jiu-jitsu techniques is not going to hurt anybody because it's a fucking sport anyway. But either way, to me, it's still just scumbag behavior. You know, I've talked about this a lot. It's like sales and marketing is the enemy of information. You know what I mean? Because you're not trying to maximize what people can know and how it can change their lives, but how many people buy what the fuck you're trying to sell them. Now, something you brought up too, which I also want to unpack because I think it's, again, a related example of where people are sold maybe suboptimal information. We talked about systems thinking. I come from the world of software engineering and systems thinking there, I mean, it has a very specific meaning and a very specific way of organizing things. In jujitsu, systems has almost become a brand, right? That's kind of Danaher's thing. It's the thing that he sells. And so people often don't really understand what systems actually are. All a system is, it is a, a process or a machine for achieving consistent, repeatable results. And ideally, you want your system to be efficient, right? So you bring up, uh, you know, you brought up the whole decision tree thing. And man, this is my favorite beginner thing to do where they will try to plot out a jujitsu flowchart and they'll kind of map out their entire game and they're going to wind up looking like a conspiracy theorist with hundreds of little red lines and arrows pointing at each other. And I mean, that's not, in my mind, that is not a system. 
that is, again, you brought up the example of like, if then else, that is just a massive decision tree. And the problem is that kind of logic just isn't scalable. And again, even in the world of software, right? Software people will tell you this when you start coding or writing software, your first inclination is often just to barf out a bajillion if then else statements. But what you find out after just a few days of doing that is you've created this unmaintainable mess of code that makes no sense anymore and no one can figure out. So in the software world, they've created these abstractions and ways to organize thinking. And in, in jujitsu, I look at things as a similar way. I personally feel like that whole flow charting thing where people map out every possible decision, you're kind of learning on a hard mode if you do things that way, because you're forcing yourself to memorize instead of forcing yourself to understand. You know, I, I've talked about this before, like we teach to condition and effect. And so this is the way we shortcut that. So what we realize is that certain conditions are precursors to many states, right? So the condition of being inside your opponent's limbs, for example, is the precursor state to many outcomes. It could be uh, the outcome to knee cut guard passing. It could be the outcome to leg entanglements. It could be the outcome to dar strangle. It could be the outcome to in different types of head and arms, but it's one condition. So what you can do is you teach people how to fulfill these conditions and work towards specific effects. And this is how you can take a bloated system like decision trees or memorizing techniques, and you can simplify it into, if I fulfill this condition, I create this effect, which is a precursor towards many outcomes. And this is actually a shortcut. So what's interesting is people say like, oh, you know, and I'm going to bring you the ecological approach up just real quick, just because, you know, that's kind of what I do. I'm like, oh, this is the long way to learn. It's actually the opposite. It's the shortcut. So there's nothing for you to remember. We're just going to interact with the environment. We're going to try to pick up information to fulfill this condition by producing this effect on our opponent, and we're going to do it often. And we're going to see how many different ways we can do it. And then that's what you're going to self-organize around. And that is going to become the foundation of everything you do thereafter. And you can get someone attuned to this information within a few months, and they feel like they've been training for years. Yeah. I love how when people argue that new methods are longer or more complicated or harder, my thought is always, I mean, motherfucker, we train in a sport here where we think it's totally acceptable to take 12 years to give someone a black belt. I mean, I just, and we brag about that. Like it's a good thing. I can't imagine that in any other walk of life. And I know I've given this example on the podcast before, but can you imagine a university bragging and saying, Hey, look, everyone else, they let you get your degrees in four years. But if you come here, <laughs> It's going to take you 12. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, what kind of sales pitch is this, right? We should be trying to simplify things. And of an inflection point in my personal jujitsu journey was, I remember one day at, at Brown Belt, I used to just be absolute dog shit at, at playing from the guard. Because what would happen to me is I'd always get tangled up and tied up. And I could never think fast enough to figure out the answer before my opponent was already on to the next thing. And it doesn't help that at the time I was getting a lot of training in with my instructor who's been training like forever. So he always knew like 10 steps ahead what I was going to do. And I was getting really frustrated because no technique that I wanted to do would work. I would follow the steps perfectly and I'd get to like step two of the knee cut pass sequence. And then my opponent would switch and lapel tie me up and I'd be all fucked. Right. But it's one day I just got really frustrated and I just said, you know what? Fuck it. My goal for the day is I'm just not going to let anyone grab me. I'm not even going to try to do a technique. I am just going to make sure that if these people are going to try to tie me up, I'm just not going to let that happen. And in the course of basically a single regular jujitsu class, my guard passing game got like 10 times better to the point where people in, like my brother actually commented and he said, what the hell happened? You got way better, noticeably faster. Well, the answer is I stopped trying to do techniques. I started just trying to not let people grab me. You started to engage with reality. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And that level of simplification was so frustrating to me because I'm sitting here thinking at this point, I've spent basically eight years learning all of these techniques and I've always been frustrated that I just couldn't make them work consistently. And now I've changed my thinking to something that a white belt could have figured out on day one. And for some reason, everything just got way easier. And I realized like I had wasted a lot of my jujitsu training time over the years trying to do things the hard way by trying to memorize things. And it just never plays out that way in reality. Yeah, no, for sure. It's, um, I'd like to use that to sort of circle back on the, uh, like we don't compete, like competition and training are two different things. So we can use that small example of you not letting people touch you. Now imagine this, imagine if you decided, okay, you know what, for the next three months, I'm going to try to not let people put their hands on me as I work to get to their hips or I work to get to their chest, work to get, whatever, pick your goal, doesn't matter. And you become a master in a few months at keeping people's hands off of you as you work. 
think about, and you want to be competitive in that way. So you're going to take all that competitive desire and it's not going to be jumping on their necks and doing all this. It's just, I'm going to be super competitive at never letting this person touch me with their hands. How good do you think you would get at that? You'd be amazing. You know, if you could really dedicate to the that task and you could really put your focus into it and be consistent and all, and all those things, take those for granted, you know, all those things. Uh, but yeah, you're just competitive over that. You know what I mean? And you wouldn't feel intense. It wouldn't feel like you're doing crazy things, but in your mind, you're being super competitive. But in fact, by being competitive with the small stuff, which is what we call it, we produce massive effects. So rather than being competitive over like squeezing you to death, just keeping your hands off of me is a way that we can take that competitive mindset and we can bring it into training, which it should be being, we should do that anyway. But it's bringing that competitive mindset into training over the small stuff that produces these massive effects. And then again, even oh, if it's something as simple as keeping hands off you, this is valuable. Well, let's expand on that there because this is something that it's a very hot topic of conversation right now. The growth mindset versus the performance mindset. And the idea is that, and I certainly have talked about this myself, the idea is that there is a competitive mode that all competitors need to be in where they're in there and they're focused more on winning than on learning. But then the the counter argument is when you are in the gym, you need to flip the switch off on that. And that's actually terminology I've used in the past, which is maybe not ideal. But the idea is that you, when you're in the gym, your focus needs to be more on learning versus winning rounds. And I think there's wisdom in that, but the problem is it makes it sound like learning and competing are mutually exclusive, which is not the case, right? It's not like a light switch that's on and off. They're more, they're just mindset dials and they have to do with the intentionality of your training. But I would want to hear you speak about this. Maybe, you know, how do you balance this feeling that when you're in competition, you're in there to play your A game and you're in there to win. But when you're in the lab, you're in there to try new things and winning isn't necessarily the goal. How do you juggle that? Well, I don't really see. There's a lot of things there we would have to define first. First of all, I don't believe in A game, B game, all that shit. Like that to me is nothing. I don't, that's not a thing. There are things you're good at and things that are well-trained and things that are, you're not good at that are under-trained. That's it. So uh, let's think of it as a, as a training protocol. You know, let's say you had four different weight lifts that you wanted to do, like a, a squat bench, press, deadlift, whatever. And if you only ever trained the deadlift, the other stuff wouldn't get any better. No matter how much you fucking deadlifted, you could brag about that all day. But if you're not doing the other things, those are just going to be weaknesses and things you can't do. So it's not like your A game is your deadlift. It's just that's all you've ever done. So what I argue is that you have to be able to solve a multitude of problems in the training environment. So what you should do is you should go about training these problems as, as frequently as often as, and variable as possible, right? Don't be connected to only solving a problem, only a single problem in one singular way, you know, solve multiple problems, multiple ways. And so that's the fir- first thing. So there's no, in my mind, there's no A game and B game. And the second thing is, is we don't have to, the way I think about competitiveness, it's just a scaling problem. It's not that we turn competitiveness on and off. The difference is this, in a competition environment, I'm not thinking about development, for example. I'm not going to do anything outside of what I can already do. So I'm not going to go into the competitive environment and be like, hmm, I wonder if I can tap this guy with uh, straight ankle locks. I have never straight ankle locked somebody, but today in the finals of the world, I'm going to go ahead and give that a shot. You know what I mean? The difference is just that. I would never go into a moment where I had to win and do something that I never d- don't know if I could do or not. But in the training room, that might be a good choice. Hey, you know what? I've been heel on people a lot lately. And I want to attack the legs differently. Maybe... I'll do a straight ankle lock. But you now have to be competitive with the things that are going to help you develop a good straight ankle lock. It's like you're not less competitive because it's new. You're not less competitive because you're bad at it. It should be the opposite. You should be competing with yourself. Can I fulfill these conditions to build this new skill and be as focused and intentional as I can be? So again, that's my argument. We're always competing. It's just we have to be able to scale it and we have to know the difference between the things we can already do and the things we cannot yet do. And we need to focus on which is going to give us the greatest developmental uh, outcome right now in training. You know, that's what we should focus on. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think that this is another example of training wheels again, where when people talk about um, performance mode versus learning mode, I think what they're really trying to say is you need to do some basic risk management in your head. You need to understand, is there a metal on the line or am I better suited off taking some risks, trying some things that I'm not particularly well versed at with the goal of getting better 
at those things. It doesn't mean that when you're in learning mode, you're not trying or you're just sitting there like a dead fish and you're just letting the other person beat you up. You're still in there. You're still giving it your all because again, you ultimately you are what you train, right? If you go in there and you train passively, that's going to impact the way that you train when you go and compete. So you don't want your, the way that you roll in practice to deviate too far from the way that you roll in competition. That said, the main difference is risk profiling. If I am rolling for fun with a friend of mine in class, I might try things that I know I'm not good at for the purpose of exposing myself to those things and getting better when I'm competing. Like you said, if I'm not good at straight ankle locks, I'm probably not going to use that opportunity to try to dive on one just to see what happens. It's again, like you said, the question is, am I competing with someone else right now or am I competing with myself? Well, I don't even like to use the word risk. What the hell are you actually risking? Like in the grand scheme of things, by not trying new things, you're risking wasted time. Like what's worse than that? Like that's something we can't ever get back. So do you want to spend 10 years in the gym daily and all you can do is straight ankle lock and you can't do anything else? And I mean, is that the kind of guy you want to be? I mean, that's what you want to be. That's cool. <laughs> but again, you just risk waste time. So I don't really think of it as even risk or not. I think it's what do you want to become at the end of the day? Because the thing that we have to first start with when we're talking about any type of training protocol is intention. What is the intention of this practice? We know that the base level intention for all practice is transferability. We want what we do here in this training room to affect us so that when we decide to perform or we decide to, man, I'm winning this completely, the training should get us closer to that inevitable or that win, right? That's what we want. And that may require working on weaknesses. So if you developed a strength, great, but it might not last forever. We might have to develop something else so that if these eventualities come up in later performance contexts, we can call on other tactics to win the game. So it's just a question of development. What do you want to be? And can you bring that intention with you to practice? You know, one of the things I say to my students all the time is skill has a lot more to do with intentionality than it does outcomes. Because sometimes outcomes can just be a random occurrence from a dynamic system. But intention is the human component. What did I intend to do? And did was I able to accomplish that intention? If I was, then we can call that skill, right? Results, I mean, outcomes can be in your favor and you, it could have been an accident. But if I said that I was going to do this and I did it, man, that's skill. And that's what we want. That's what the training process is all about, right? Yeah, absolutely. Well, let me ask then here, if you are a, a regular student, you know, you have maybe minimal ability to control the way that your gym class is structured. What can a regular student do kind of out of the gate to bypass some of these myths and just improve their training almost overnight? Like we talked about, I'm sure there's a few quick changes that people can make to just get more out of a regular jujitsu class. For sure. Okay. So if anyone listens to this and wants to hear my opinion about it, the first thing we have to understand is what we are doing. Jujitsu is a fighting game. We're playing a game where we're fighting each other. The base nature of a fight is confrontation, which suggests competitiveness. So accept it. That's what's going to happen. You're going to be hot. You're going to be sweaty. It's going to be fatiguing, but you got to be competitive. You're going to fight. And that's what we do when we go to practice. Now, okay, we accept that. What's next? Intention. What do you want to develop when you go train? Pick it. It could be something as simple as, I'm going to keep my knees to my chest and never, ever, ever, ever let someone put their chest on mine. If that's what you picked, sweet. Now be competitive with it. Put all your intention behind that. Put all your effort behind that. Use all your attributes and try to figure that out as deeply as possible. But with the base understanding that you have to be confrontational and competitive to achieve that end because the person's going to try to get there and your job is to not let them, right? And do that with everything. Again, understand that at base level fighting is competitive and confrontational and it's uncooperative, unscripted, it's tiring, it's fatiguing. We're going to fight, but have an intention for why you fight. That's what's going to lead to development. Not fighting, being less intense, not intense, not focused, not competitive. That's not going to help you. But knowing how to focus that energy through intentionality is what's going to help you. Yeah, that's a great point. When I started thinking about intentionality going into my training sessions, it made a big difference. Before, I would just kind of show up and just listen to what the coach said we were doing that day, and I would just try to do that thing. But I found that to be kind of a not so great way for a variety of reasons we've gotten into uh, to actually improve my skill. But I found that once I started kind of building an intentionality practice around my class. So thinking beforehand about what I wanted to work on and trying to figure out what can I do in this training session to fix a particular problem and then to reflect on that after the class, I found that to be an extremely useful experience. And again, 
tying this back into the world of, of software development, this is a, a very common practice in that world where you kind of create a, a continuous improvement loop and you're always trying to like do, measure, learn. And I found that that approach very much helped in jujitsu as well. So if I, you know, decided I really want to work on a particular way to get from top to bottom, if I'm playing a seated guard, I would kind of make a commitment to myself that I would try to get into these scenarios. And if the situation ever arose, I would make a point of trying this technique, even if it's not something I would normally do. If I want to work on single leg X guard, I'm going to make a point of trying to get that look. And I found that focusing my training like that was super helpful. Now, again, you got to be careful here because we're now starting to talk about techniques, right? And so you want to focusing too much on techniques for reasons that we've discussed is not always the best way to kind of isolate your training. But sometimes you just have a really specific thing that you want to work on. Like again, single leg X guard, it requires a certain set of entries to get into. It doesn't always just happen automatically. But for me, I found that just building that feedback loop was one of the most valuable things that I, I did for my own jujitsu. It switched the focus so my brain was no longer on autopilot when I went into class. And now I was an active participant in determining what I was going to learn. And that made a big difference for me. Well, for sure. I think intentionality is everything. Because if we know what we intended to do, it becomes easier to analyze the outcomes, right? If we don't know what we just intended to do, it's hard to analyze why shit happens. You know what I mean? Where did I meet resistance? Where did it go wrong? What could I do better? So again, if we start with that intention and then we let we get a bunch of results and then practice ends and we can sit and think about it, now we have information to analyze. And so we can take that information based on the results of our intentionality and then we can recycle it, right? That's how we use feedback, right? That's the feedback loop there, you know? So again, another reason why we don't need a coach too, ultimately, if, if you know how to do this appropriately and you learn how to do this, we can do this ourselves because really you are doing it yourself, whether you're a beginner or otherwise. But learning that that is the process, starting with intention and ending with analyzing the results and then shifting your intention, that's what learning is, right? But again, okay, we know I've argued before, it's got to be unscripted, it's got to be uncooperative, and it's got to be competitive, even over the small stuff. Like if I'm working, let's say anything from top position, I consider hitting my back a loss for the day. So no matter what I'm doing in top position, if my back touches that mat in my mind, loss, you lost today, you know, I get real competitive with it. And I allow my body the freedom to solve that problem any way that it would like. But the intention would be to stay on top. And so I get real competitive with it. I get real serious with it. And I analyze results afterwards. How can I better stay on top of somebody and not fall down? Yeah. All you guys talking about gamification and constraints has kind of had me thinking about this. And it's changed the way that I do my training. I used to be more focused on results at class. Whereas now I try to restrict my training so that I focus on kind of mini goals like you talked about. And it's resulted in much higher quality roles because I can put myself into situations that crank up the difficulty. So a lot of the time now with uh, with white belts, for example, I'll have them start in a fully locked in submission and see if I can battle my way out of that. And if I get out, I will try to get back into a position again where they've got some sort of advantage basically turning up the difficulty dial. And that has been very, very helpful for me because it allows me to kind of steer the session into the area of jujitsu that I want to work on. It's funny because people, you know, the conventional wisdom is that, well, if you're a black belt, you're not going to get much value training with white belts. I actually find that these days I get more value training with white belts than I do with black belts. And the reason why is because against a white belt, I'm good enough to take the role wherever I want it to be. If I'm in there with a black belt, you know, I, I can't always control what they're going to do. It's going to turn into a battle of wills at some point. Whereas with a white belt, I mean, look, if I want to work on topside pressure, I can get there in 10 seconds, right? So I can keep moving the role back to where I need it to be. And so I found that that's been one of the most pleasant things about moving towards a, a more constraints-based system is now I'm no longer so worried about, oh God, I'm stuck with the junior guy. You know, I'm not going to get a good role. Now I look forward to training with the white belts because I can create the exact game that I want and they can't do anything about it because they're a white belt. <laughs> so I can just make it happen. No, and it shows you the power of intentionality and you can use different environments, different, you know, task constraints to sort of help focus, like I said, that intention towards some skill you need to develop no matter what level of resistance you're receiving. Like, you know, it's funny, but anybody who gives me any type of um, pushback uh, for my student, DeAndre Corby, but one thing no one is ever considering is that DeAndre Corby is, you know, one of the best lightweights, featherweights, you know, because he he goes within 15 pounds in the world right now, right? He's one of the, the strongest up and coming grapplers. He trains in a room, a small room with a bunch of nobody whites and, or white to purples. And he's able to use that room to develop the skill that you're seeing him manifest out there against other elite players. So again, it shows you if you can constrain yourself appropriately, if you can give yourself the right intentions, 
no matter what you're working with, you can use it to develop your skills. But without that intention piece, without the understanding of how to constrain yourself to produce specific outcomes, you're almost powerless against it. You know what I mean? You almost need to be in a room full of killers to get better. Yeah, it's funny. I find now one of the main changes that's happened for me is the most common people who tap me out in class now are white belts. And the reason why is because when I'm in there with a colored belt or another black belt, it resembles a a more traditional competitive role. You know, it could go anywhere. And in a situation like that, my defense is good enough across the board that I can fight pretty effectively. Whereas against a white belt, if I'm deliberately trying to steer them into my area of weakness, like a fully locked in submission, I'm going to make a mistake now and then, and someone's going to catch me. And I actually find because we've got so many more white belts than black belts at my gym. And because I'm giving them these opportunities, I realized the other day, you know what? It's actually the white belts who are tapping me more because they're spending more time attacking me from these like fully locked in submissions with a black belt. I'm usually trying not to let them get there because the skill level is more at parity. But with a white belt, if I can cook these scenarios, I mean, it does kind of change your expectation because, you know, there's a lot of coaches who frown on this and they, they say like a black belt should never get tapped by a brown belt or a blue belt or a white belt. But look, if you bake your training to give people advantages like that, I mean, I think this is a good thing. It's good for the white belt because they get some opportunities attacking someone more senior and seeing what high level defense looks like gives them some confidence too, if they actually do catch you. And it's good for the black belt because it allows you to direct your training towards your areas of ultimate weakness. And the other thing too, is, I mean, I think that there is something tremendously powerful about going in there and tapping to a lower belt, right? I think it's good for the culture. One of the things I really dislike about jujitsu traditionality is this belief that the belts reflect some sort of hierarchy and that if you are a, a more senior belt, you are better somehow and you should never, ever lose to a junior belt. I mean, look, there's a lot of blue belt world champions out there who would beat the brakes off of me. I'm well aware of that, right? The belt really doesn't mean that much other than time spent and where you're at in your personal journey. It's not a measure of worth against anyone else. Yeah, for sure. I mean, you know, every school has their own standards by which they do use promotions, you know, so that has to be taken into consideration. We talk about things like that, right? So like here at my school, for example, we don't belt outside of performance. You could be a white belt forever here at standard jiu-jitsu. So again, we use it as a, a way to reflect development. You're not compared to the world as standard, you're compared to standard. So a blue belt here is compared to other blue belts here of, you know, of type. So I'm not going to take a two day a weeker and compare them to a six day a weeker. I can't do that. I would have to compare them to other two-day-a-weekers, right? Or if I'm taking a 40-year-old, I'm not comparing them to a 20-year-old. But either way, the way I'm judging them as a coach is based on their performance. And the reason I think this is a good measure is because the, we're, we're engaged in skill development. If we're going to have a ranking system, it should say something about what we're producing. It, it shouldn't be about anything else really. And anyway, that, that's just the, you know, the way we do it. I mean, again, I'm not you know, hard-lying on anyone, else, anyone else's culture here, but it should have some reflection of performance or you can even do understanding like judo has a good way to do this right you know they have the 67 throws the kodakan i mean i don't know how many are in the kodakan that are you know canon right now but if you can demonstrate them with clarity and with purpose and you know with understanding you can award yourself a black belt that way so i think there are multiple multiple ways to look at it but yeah ours here is performance-based Yeah, yeah. The way that you explained it is actually similar to what uh, my old instructor explained. He said that for him, the way that he reward awards belts is a belt is a measure of your personal journey. Basically, where are you at relative to your potential? And I think that, and you talked about this too, I think that relativity is important because people have different levels of commitment to jujitsu and they have, you know, they come in at different parts in their lives. There's all sorts of physical factors. I mean, if someone comes in and they've got a, some sort of disability, right? They're simply, they might not be able to go in there and just smoke everyone else at their same belt rank. So I like this idea of it is a measure of where you're at relative to your own potential. And that's important too, because for a lot of people, especially people who come in later in life, or maybe even people who just don't want to compete, if their focus is, for example, on the teaching end of jujitsu, then maybe that that also impacts how you train things, right? I mean, my, you would maybe hold someone to a higher standard of teaching if you know that their goal is to be a teacher at some point. I just, I think it's important that there is some degree of relativity there because yeah, it's funny. People often look at belts like it's some sort of accredited accomplishment, but it's really yeah, not, right? It's, it's not, not at all. <laughs> there's nothing standardized about jujitsu belts. It's literally all that a belt means in jujitsu is that someone out there thought that you deserve that belt. So they gave it to you, right? That's all it means. It's not like getting a PhD where you have to defend your thesis in front of your peers or anything like that. There's no process of getting accredited. So yeah, I think that that's an important thing to consider too. Well, you know, I, I consider it heavily even in our culture here at the gym, right? So our promotions are odd. 
Like there is no promotion day. Yay, get it. Family, friends. Nah, man, it's it's random. You know, I, I've got some coming up here. Uh, they're going to, we're going to do the first week of the year. No one's aware of it. Literally what I'm going to do is like, I always do this, right? Because we, we use rash guards because we don't have any geese. We don't use the belts. And so I just give them the new colored rash guard that they're going to be representing now. And you know, we'll, we'll start class and I'll say, hey guys, you know, blah, blah, blah. I'll just give a quick talk about what it means here at this gym to be promoted. And then I'm literally going to throw shirts at the people and say, welcome to your rank, get your partner, let's start training. Because the thing is, I also want to minimize how important it is as a thing in and of itself. Like I want to recognize that you perform to get here. You've developed skill that says in our system, you are becoming skillful towards this endpoint. But again, guess what we have to do right after we put these new shirts on? We got to get back to training. Again, I, I like to minimize it rather than, you know, uh, play it. Yeah, I agree completely. I found the longer I trained, the the less I liked the belt system. And I, I know people hate it when I say this because they always say, well, you're a black belt, right? Easy for you to say you don't like the belt system because you've already got what you wanted. But honestly, the happiest days of my life in jiu-jitsu were when I was a white belt. You know, there was no expectation. And you realize as you climb up the ranks that if you're not careful, you can let that perception of the belt color the way that you interact with your training partners. And that's, I think, one of those other arguments against traditionality in the gym. There's a lot of emphasis put on the belts. I mean, it's frankly hilarious what a gym coach can get other grown adults to do by incentivizing them with like a small piece of sports <laughs> tape. Like the thing, the things are not I kidding. Mean, my God, the things that you can get people to bend over backwards to do just by telling them, Hey, if you keep this up, you, you know, I got an inch of sports tape that's got your name on it. It's just so funny how into it people get. And I understand it, right? Because it's a very visual accomplishment, but I also think it can be harmful to focus too much on the belt. It really shouldn't mean as much, I think, as some people want it to mean. Oh, it, re- it really can, man. It really can. And you think about the other great sporting cultures that don't have any type of ranking at all. You either play the sport because you enjoy it or you you want to be somebody in the sport. But the only thing that you know about yourself is how good you are relative to other people. You don't know anything else. There's no marker on you unless you like won a tournament. You could say, you know, I won the fucking US Open or whatever. And so I like, man, it kind of sucks that we don't have that too. You know, I take a lot from wrestling culture. I really like wrestling culture. I like you know, it's about consistency, showing up, putting your focus, putting your effort, getting skillful, getting better, facing your challenges, accepting results. There's no rank. You know what I mean? And I wish we could do something like that. I, I don't really like rank all 20 at the end of the day. Like even me, like this whole thing, I'm a black belt. I guarantee that if you listen to all my podcasts, you don't ever hear me talk about that shit because I, I don't really care. It's like, it's, it's silly. And I always, you know, people come in here, people will give you undue respect. It's like, oh, bow to me. And they'll say, oh, I'm like, dude, show. I just like jujitsu more than you. That's the only difference between you and I. <laughs> like, you know, I'm Greg. I'm the fucking guy who decided to waste his whole life on this shit. What's going on? You know, it's like the black belt is silly. Awesome. Well, great chat, man. I mean, on the topic of myths, we covered quite a bit here. We talked about uh, belts. We talked about competition versus growth. We talked about training wheels. We talked about a lot of things. Anything else on your mind in terms of just myth busting in the jujitsu culture that you want to address before we wrap this up? No, man, I just think that's it. I think, remember, you know, we train to perform and we perform to train. We can't take away those two things. The real thing that we want to take away from this, guys, is that it's the focus of intention that we should focus on, whether it be something super small or something even big. You know, we want to try to put all of our effort, all of our focus into these things that we intend to do. And again, we bring that competitive spirit. People say, leave your ego at the door. I say, don't bring that fucking ego with you. Just make sure it's pointed in the right direction. Uh, It's not about winning or losing at the end of the day. Both are lessons of learning. It's about development. Who do you want to be and which direction do you want to go in? And once you define that, give it your all every day. We perform. And so that's it, man. That's, That's the easiest way I can say that anyway. And I, I like to try to build that culture here in my gym. I think that it produces a good effect. And people start respecting that. You know, they start liking that intensity because it means something. It means something more than just winning and losing. You know, it's about, it, but it's about that effort. It makes yourself feel good for what you try to accomplish at the end of the day when you've given it your all. And you never have that excuse of, well, I wasn't just going that hard today. Like, why not? Do you really not want to be good at finding inside position? That's on you. <laughs> so anyway. Awesome. Well, man, if people want to follow you, check out your work, ask you questions, how do they go about doing that? Same as always, guys, if you guys are repeat listeners, you know where to find me uh, at GD Souders on IG or at Standard Jiu-Jitsu. And like I said before, please, 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 please don't email me. Do not email me at, you know, at, on my email. I will not respond to you unless you are coming to my school to train here. I only respond on at GD Souders and at Standard Jiu-Jitsu. So if you're curious about interacting with me, interacting with my students, my school, whatever, please reach out on there. 
Awesome. All right. Well, thanks a lot, man. I appreciate that as I always do. I'll put the links in the show notes to make it an easy one-click experience if people want to get in contact with Greg or follow him. I will also put a link to our stuff. Everything we make lives at bjjmentalmodels.com. So if you want to check out those episodes I referenced earlier, sign up for our newsletter. It's all there. It's all free. You can also join our premium service, sign up for that, and you get access to a series of much more in-depth conversations than we get into on the pod, believe it or not. We structure things more kind of like courses there. So if you want to hear some of the best minds in the sport unpack in a lot more detail how they think and perform, that's a great way to do that. You also get direct coaching from some of the best black belts in the world. Uh, quite literally, our team has, I think, won a collective 20 world championships between them. So if you want a closer look at your jujitsu than what you're getting in the gym, just sign up there. Again, bjjmentalmodels.com is where everything lives. Greg, thanks a lot, man, for coming by. Always love chatting with you. Yes, sir. Thank you, Steve. Thanks, buddy. And thanks to the listeners as well. We'll talk to you next week. Take care.